0: To a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The April 2022 issue is devoted to articles about nutrition and pulmonary disease. So today we want to focus on a review paper entitled Nutrition Implications of Restrictive Lung Disease. Joining me today are two of the co-authors, Dr. Sylvia Rinaldi and Dr. Janet Medill, Sylvia Rinaldi, PhD, RD, is an adjunct professor in the School of Food and Nutritional Sciences at Brescia University in London, Ontario, Canada. Janet Medill, also a PhD, RD, is a full professor in the School of Food and Nutritional Sciences, also at Brescia University in London, Ontario, Canada. So thank you, Sylvia and Janet, for joining me today. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. Dr. Rinaldi? No disclosure. Dr. Medill?
1: I have no disclosures.
0: Great. Sylvia, I'm going to start this question with you. So, just as we're starting a discussion, I would like for you to maybe define for our listeners what restrictive lung disease is. What is it? How is it diagnosed? what's the etiology of restrictive lung disease and and what are some of the common disease states that would be considered restrictive lung disease?
2: So restrictive lung diseases are any disease that results in the restriction or the reduction of the lung volume. So this can be by factors that are external to the lung uh, that typically will physically restrict the ability of that chest wall to expand. So for example, in severe cases of scoliosis or chest wall abnormalities, also in extreme cases of obesity. This external factor can also be due to neuromuscular disorders that affect the respiratory muscles. On the other side of things, intrinsic factors um, occur within the lung. So these in particular um, are grouped under the umbrella term of interstitial lung disease because they generally affect the lung interstitium. Um, this group of disorders, there's many of them. They're very heterogeneous, but for the most part, they're characterized by various degrees of inflammation or fibrosis of that lining of the air sac of the lungs, um, which then affects gas exchange and then the expandability of those alveoli. It's um, these extrinsic causes of restrictive lung disease that we focused on for our paper. With regards to diagnosis of ILD or interstitial lung disease, it's not necessarily straightforward. It can depend on the actual etiology of the ILD, but in general, it's diagnosed by a trained pulmonologist, involves CT scans along with pulmonary function tests, as well as other clinical um, and imaging criteria such as chest x rays, bronchoscopies, surgical lung biopsies, or different blood tests. Also important is a thorough history and physical examination, and that helps to identify those underlying causes. So within the etiologies, again, these can be very broad. There's many different possible etiologies. In some cases, they're unknown or idiopathic. So some common cases that you'll hear idiopathic nonspecific interstitial pneumonia or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF. Um, IPF being one of the more common types of ILD within that umbrella term. It's thought there may be potentially genetic components, particularly of IPF, as well as there's other forms of ILD that are also genetically related. So other causes may be related to environmental or occupational exposures. A common ILD is hypersensitivity and immunitis. Other are iatrogenic causes, so drug or medication related They can also be related to autoimmune diseases in the case of different connective tissue disease-associated ILDs. And within this etiology, some of those common disease states are sarcoidosis, systemic sclerosis, and scleroderma, just to name a few. But there's many, I believe there's over 200 different types of ILD out there.
0: So Sylvia, I want to do a follow-up question. You've kind of explained to us restrictive lung disease, but Why is it that we as nutrition professionals need to be aware of these restrictive lung diseases? And and for what reasons are these patients with this disease process that that increase nutrition risk?
2: That's a very good question. So restrictive lung diseases are incurable, and in some cases they can be relentlessly progressive. And at least speaking to our Canadian experience, generally nutrition professionals aren't part of that standard care of ILD treatment. So in those specialty ILD clinics. So, for many patients, it's not until their disease has significantly progressed that a dietitian or a nutrition professional may be involved in their care. So, this can occur due to maybe a hospitalization or once they are planned to be assessed for a lung transplant, then a dietitian is involved. So, especially for those dietitians that come across these patients, whether it's in an inpatient or outpatient setting for reasons outside of that underlying ILD. Um, It would be very important for them to be aware of these nutrition implications of this disease and potentially identify ILD as a nutrition risk factor within their medical history. So we know that more broadly, nutrition intervention can play a significant role in affecting any patient's clinical outcome um, or quality of life, and particularly in the case of ILD, potentially better tolerance to their medical treatments. So we know there's a number of different reasons why these patients can be malnourished or be at risk of malnutrition. The first one being the disease itself. Many of the ILD diagnoses are related to inflammation, and we know that inflammatory responses in the body can affect someone's nutrition status. And generally, when we see the worsening of a patient's disease severity, we tend to also see a decline in their nutrition status. And we know that some of these diseases, like I mentioned, are relentlessly progressive. We also tend to see a decline in their weight and muscle wasting as their disease worsens and the underlying difficulty with breathing and subsequent functional exercise intolerance also puts them at risk of decreased muscle mass and in some cases, sarcopenic obesity. This decreased exercise capacity can also have different social or environmental factors that affects their nutrition status. So just simply having the energy or the ability to get their own groceries or prepare balanced meals can affect their nutrition intake. And then couple this with the long list of possible medication side effects that in these kind of typical medications that are used can affect not only their intake, so in the case of nausea or decreased appetite, or can cause excessive intake, that we tend to see that with use of corticosteroids such as prednisone. So not only affecting their intake, but can potentially alter their nutrition needs. So in patients that experience diarrhea or vomiting, obviously then they would have increased needs as a result. So I think the last thing that I'll mention about nutrition risk with this patient is I think there's also a component with a bit of misinformation within this patient group. So I mean this in relation to the information that we know about survival and BMI in this group. So when we're looking at just general survival, there's some research out there that have shown that a higher BMI actually results in longer survival times. Yet, if we compare this to our transplant population group, and at least in Canada, about just under a third to about half of patients that receive a lung transplant, whether single or bilateral, have IPF or have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So once they progress to this stage, there's usually some strict BMI guidelines that they need to get to in order to be listed for transplant. So there's somewhat of conflicting guidance there with higher weights being protective for survival, but needing to be below a certain weight in order to get a transplant if they progress to that point. So it can be difficult for these patients that are maybe reading these things online patient support groups talking about these things and then feeling like they need to lose weight by kind of any means that they can make it happen. And then potentially if they're not supported by a knowledgeable nutrition professional, have the risk of putting themselves in a malnourished state. So there's lots of different factors. There's not necessarily one size fits all with patient presentation with ILD or nutrition risks. So having that brief overview, that knowledge of typical nutrition risk factors would be important for any clinician that comes across these patients.
0: So you mentioned a little bit about sarcopenia and obesity. And also in your paper, you do talk about body composition that's specific to CT scans and DEXA scans. And so you also mentioned frailty. So Janet, what percentage of these patients have sarcopenia and frailty and what's the best way to really identify and treat both sarcopenia and frailty in this specific patient population?
1: Well, thank you. That's that's an excellent question. And I wish that I could provide an excellent answer. Unfortunately, very little research has been done in this patient population examining sarcopenia and frailty. So there is one author, Seth, back in 2019, who examined 50 IPF patients and reported that approximately 48% of the patients were classified as frail. That's really the only data that we have in this patient population. So if we want to look at identifying sarcopenia, there's many ways that clinical dietitians um, can identify sarcopenia. One way is to utilize bioelectrical impedance analysis and examine the fat-free mass index and then compare those to the norms. Another way that clinical dietitians can identify sarcopenia is to utilize bedside ultrasound and measuring things like QMLT or quadricep muscle layer thickness. However, there's no research currently being done to compare what the norm would be for these particular patients. So the best strategy would then be to use the patient as their own control and uh, examine it from that perspective. We can also look at hand grip strength to determine the strength of our patients. And in terms of treatments, well, there's not a lot of data gained. In terms of treatment. So, we need to look at other disease types and look and see whether or not we can implement some of those strategies. For example, we may be able to treat the sarcopenia by increasing the individual's protein intake. Certainly, Bauer et al. has published some significant information on protein requirements for elderly patients. And since our ILD patients are, in fact, elderly, we probably want to institute those recommendations. However, again, we don't have a lot of research in this area to support whether or not a high protein intake would be beneficial. In terms of identifying frailty, essentially we can use the fried frailty phenotype scale. And if we look at frailty and malnutrition, we know that they, while they are very distinct entities, there is a lot of similarities. We know from the literature that approximately 9 to 55% of our ILD patients are malnourished. So we could say, but we have to only speculate, that somewhere between 9 and 55% of these patients may, in fact, be identified as frail. In terms of treating these patients with the frailty, I think that by examining their ability in terms of physical activity, how much they can, in fact, do based on their disease condition, I think the most that we can do probably is to attenuate any type of overall nutritional status in terms of, of their protein intake and their physical activity. So
0: let's go to the next step then, Janet. What would be some overall macronutrient goals that we should set for these patients?
1: So in terms of macronutrients, the two that really come to mind are calories and protein. And again, we don't have a lot of data to support what the recommendations would be. So we're going to look to the COPD population and utilize some of their recommendations. Certainly, um, if we look at the COPD population, they're indicating that about 15 to 20% of of energy expenditure is increased. However, I think that as dieticians, we may want to utilize indirect calorimetry, because I think that will lend a whole lot of information in terms of what the caloric requirements are for our patients. And then the beauty of being a clinical dietitian is that we can monitor these patients, we can provide a, a that amount of calories and then monitor them to ensure that we're meeting their requirements. The second macronutrient that I think is vitally important is their protein intake. We know as I said from Bauer et al., if we look at the older population, we're looking at anywhere from at least 1.2 to 2.0 grams per kilogram. So I think it would be prudent for us to involve those particular guidelines and then conduct research to see whether or not these are meeting those patients' nutritional recommendations.
0: What about micronutrients? Do you have any specific guidelines or any specific nutrients that we should really be attuned to to make sure that we at least monitor or supplement those?
1: So in terms of micronutrients, I think there's a little bit more data available in the ILV population. Certainly the micronutrients that come to mind would be vitamin D, vitamin ACE, those are the antioxidants. And I think that what we want to do is we would like to utilize the IOM guidelines for vitamin D. Orlick et al. has published a significant amount of information for identifying the insufficiency and sufficient levels of vitamin D. And not only that, they have also done a significant amount of research and examined how much we should be supplementing these particular patients. In terms of vitamin D, again, we know that patients who have a BMI greater than 30 should definitely be screened for for vitamin D deficiency. And I think that just overall, we need to do what i like to refer to for my undergraduate and graduate nutrition students is implement the acronym SIM screen, intervene, and then monitor. I think that as clinical dietitians, we have a wonderful opportunity to screen these patients and then intervene. And if we use standardized techniques, particularly in relation to the vitamin D IOM guidelines, we can certainly start to see whether or not the recommendations that they have for how much to give these patients will be very beneficial.
0: Sylvia, I'm gonna come back to you. You mentioned earlier medications. In fact, you specifically talked about corticosteroids, but in your paper, you have a whole section on medication and nutrition-related side effects. Why is that so important for us to know as clinicians?
2: So I think there's it's a twofold benefit. So some of these medications can affect someone's nutritional status, like I'd mentioned. And some of these side effects can also be managed by nutrition interventions, thereby allowing patients to actually stay on those medications longer. Therefore, there's a potential in both of these cases to impact an individual's disease progression or their prognosis. So we know that in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, average survival time in the absence of any treatment is two and a half to five years. As well, we know that adverse events are the most common reason for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis patients to actually discontinue their medications. So as registered dietitians, we're well positioned to provide both systematic and supportive care to these patients. So a good example is nintedanib or OFEV is the brand name, which is a medication that's specific to ILD treatment or IPF specifically. It tends to be notorious for its side effect of diarrhea, which is a main factor in why many patients tend to discontinue its use. So if we can manage these side effects, such as the diarrhea, we can potentially allow them to stay on this medication longer, affecting their disease treatment. And at the same time, If we are able to intervene with these patients that maybe otherwise wouldn't have had a nutrition professional, especially those that are experiencing extreme diarrhea, we can also mitigate that risk of malnutrition in the form of malabsorption and potentially slow or prevent further complicating their nutrition status as a result of these medication side effects. So there's multiple benefits from nutrition perspective, as well as from allowing them to be on these medications longer and affecting their disease itself.
0: So, this has been really interesting. I've learned a lot today. And I just want to find out from both of our participants, Sylvia and Janet, before we close, do you have any other comments that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: Well, certainly what I'd like to do, and I think I can speak on behalf of both myself and Dr. Rinaldi, is that the time to act is now. RDNs and RDs have a wonderful opportunity. To take a leadership role and work with our medical colleagues to ensure the best patient outcomes by improving first research endeavors, implementing nutrition tools such as BIA, hand grip strength, ultrasound, and implementing screening tools and following these patients from a perspective of, again, the what I like to call SIM, so screen, intervene, and monitor. But I think that uh, the opportunity presents ourselves and certainly After doing this research and looking at the evidence for this review, I think it was pretty evident that we need to do much more for these patients. And if we look at the long haulers for the SARS-CoV-2 patients, we know that there are a number of other patients who tested positive who may, in fact, in years to come, develop ILD. So certainly the number of patients that we're going to encounter is going to increase. And I think that, as I said, we have a wonderful opportunity to take a leadership
2: role. I can also add that I think what we found out from this review as well is there's not a great amount of research looking kind of at the comprehensive nutrition needs of this patient population. So I think there's really an opportunity for these multiple institutions internationally to come together and really synthesize larger study research with more participants to help form really strong research results to best support this patient population.
0: Well, I want to thank Dr. Rinaldi and Dr. Medill for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. And I want to invite our listeners and our readers to learn more about this topic, as well as other papers on pulmonary disease and the April 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you, Dr. Rinaldi and Dr. Medill.